0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. I uh, probably like our callers. You know, you look around, you're like, well, I need to buy something nice, but what? Because I'm really uncomfortable buying fancy clothes or anything. And I tried one of my dad's hand me down Zena suits, and I looked a little like an Italian mobster. So I, I passed on <laughs> that look uh, for conferences. <laughs> and uh, I feel uh, like
1: every, <laughs> every man's tried the Zena and been like.
0: Yeah. Nope. No. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> yeah. I'm only in my 30s, you know, come on. I, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: Maybe if I were 30 years old. Yeah. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. Well, this week, we're turning to our call-in line. And you know what? We listened to the first voicemails. We were a little surprised to hear that they were all from men. Well, duh. Anyone who's been paying attention knows that men are the fastest growing segment of fashion spending, but we have obviously been neglecting them on hot buttons. So here goes. We're going to try and answer their questions in this episode and talk more broadly about men's fashions and if the approach to sustainability is any different than women's. And as always, we'll look at the week's headlines to see if the fashion industry is making progress towards sustainable futures or not. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Christina? I'm doing good. Thank you. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from South Salem, New York. Hey, Sheila. Hi, Christina. To get rolling, I was going to ask you guys to tell me something fabulous that you ate this week, but then <laughs> we all woke up. <laughs> Something fun and non-fashion related, but um, then we woke up and this yay, yeezy, YZE thing happened in Paris, and some of us were so triggered that I figured we might as well just leap right in. Kanye West, now known as Yay, had a surprise fashion show in Paris yesterday, and while the clothes were sort of interesting... No one is talking about them because of what Ye wore and what it means. Uh, Rachel, do you have thoughts to share on Ye's White Lives Matter tea? Shella, you too. Well, first of all, I was saying before the episode, I think we should give him
1: as little airtime as possible because this is part of the problem. And that's why we're not going to devote a whole lot of time on this episode to speaking about it because he doesn't deserve it. All I want to say is the fashion industry is at fault for continuing to line his pockets. These companies, including Demna from Balenciaga, have such little foresight that they continue to hire him and leverage his audience when he is clearly a sick, sick person. And not only sick, he is aligned with Trump. They are very good bedfellows. And he seemingly shows signs of being abusive and narcissistic, along with being untreated for his mental health problems. He is racist. He is violent. And he incites uh, and inspires a lot of bad behavior among um, people that um, are fragile uh, we have a very fragile country right now. And I don't think it's funny. I don't think he should be allowed to be given a platform any longer by the fashion industry. Gap should not have hired him. Balenciaga should not have allowed him to open a show. Um, he has proven time and again to be not a great human. I watched the Kardashians. He, it was ab- abusive towards Kim on camera on multiple occasions, which no one talked about. And uh, it just, it makes me really upset that we continue to allow him to have a platform. Um, I, and that's all
2: I'm gonna say, because <laughs> I'm I'm really upset. I'm really upset. It's worth noting, by the way, that he's also been on Instagram all morning ranting, and he went after, with two Instagram posts, a young, absolutely delightful stylist, Black stylist who's been working with Vogue. She's, um, I mean, she's really making a career for herself. And she's like, honestly, she's like a ray of sunshine every time she goes into a room. I mean, she's just, I don't know why he decided to go after her. Um, I'm not going to name her because I don't want more people going and looking after her. She's, I, I hope, I hope she has a quiet day um but i doubt she is having a quiet day after something like that so it's just it's gross
3: yeah i couldn't agree with you guys more um and i was encouraged by the fact you know his past antics a lot of times folks in the black community would defend him um you know slavery's a choice and the trump antics and the maga hats um and and there was there were strong segments in the black community that would come to his defense and now it feels like the tide is really turning and i think it's also worth Really engaging with why what he wore is so problematic, because I also see some strands of what's the big deal with that phrase, mm. white lives matter, um, and why the big reaction. Um, and there's this black producer Van Lathan, um, who and I'm gonna read what he wrote because I think it's it's worth reading, and I think he says it quite eloquently. But he writes, we don't need a reminder of the worth of white lives. America is a shrine to the worth of white people. This message is reactionary to a message affirming the worth of black lives, which have never been worth anything in America. In its intent, it's a white supremacist notion because it posits that we can't have a conversation about the worth of Black people without having a conversation about the worth of white people, which is insane. The notion that it always has to be about white people in America is incredibly frustrating, emotionally draining, and the whole problem. But here's Kanye apparently centering that notion. And that's, I think, all that needs Mm -hmm. to be said. Thank you. Thanks, Jilla.
2: Okay. Let's look at the headlines. This week, we saw Levi's release their net zero goal by 2050 pledge, which they apparently thought was worth applause. I'm sorry. A promise to get to net zero by the time my unborn grandchildren are adults is unworthy of applause. Snap, snap, folks. Let's see some action here. Um, And then sort of in the same light, Sourcing Journal reported on Sheehan's commitment to the Apparel Impact Institute. Rachel, you took a dive into that. Tell us.
1: Well, I, you know, I've been talking about Apparel Impact Institute's fund for uh, several episodes, and I, I think what they're doing is a worthy cause. I don't think seven point six billion dollars uh, from a co- company that's valued at a hundred billion dollars is meaningful. I'm glad uh, Apparel Impact Institute is collecting more funds for their worthy work, but I also think it. Um, on Shein's behalf, it's not enough, and other companies who are worth far less have put in more. I suspect they have put in more. Um, I think uh, there are some other companies have put it that have put in around ten a piece, at least ten, ten million. Yeah, you mean. ten million. Sorry, did I say billion? Ten million. Yeah. So Sheehan put, put in seven, seven six. Shein put in 7.6. Yeah.
2: Million. That's Million. been okay. reported,
1: which was a strange yeah. number and just didn't seem, you know, it just, whatever.
2: I think you well <laughs> said.
1: Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Sorry. I mean, like, stop producing so many clothes. <laughs> just stop produ- How about also stop producing so many clothes?
3: The only thing that I thought was interesting, Rachel, in that story was that it said – Shein's carbon emissions in 2021 is at 6 million tons, and H&M Group's at 7.8 million metric tons, and Zara is at 17 million metric tons over the same period. And so I was wondering whether that seemed right to you, because we focus a lot of our energy on Shein based on their production volumes, and here in the article it kind of laid out the carbon emissions – um, is actually, of the three big fast fashion groups, is one of the, is on the lower end? Does that I don't, right?
1: I have no idea. I have no idea how they're measuring, like, h- are they measuring the full, their full scope three? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't even leave it to people like me to measure the accuracy of what any of these companies are reporting.
2: Um, I can't imagine right we
1: can believe those numbers. Right. It just doesn't seem, it seems all made up. <laughs> right. Uh yeah i mean if someone is listening to this and has uh,
2: a little bit more insight than i do into that i would love a call in about it actually is there a major in a, in carbon accounting anywhere at some finance school wharton should have a major in carbon I'm accounting i'm sure there's I think. i'm sure idea. there's some at this point ways to I do hope it so.
1: although all of these like any type of accounting <laughs> or any type of you know it's it's numbers can be used but generally
2: accepted accounting principles are pretty good. Yeah, they're yeah, uh, they, they are. are. Yeah. Uh, we just need that for carbon. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not right. just currencies. Okay, we, here's another big headline um, that has a lot of people jammering today. And yesterday, just this morning, we saw that the South Korean internet company Naver announced that it's acquiring Poshmark in a deal valued at $1.2 billion. This is the largest acquisition yet by Naver, who they call the Google of South Korea. It's a big internet company. It's a search engine, and it also has e-tailing. Um, operations. This gets Naver further into the North American market and into resale. It's a perfect cap to secondhand September, I guess, but it sent Naver's shares tumbling, so apparently investors don't like the deal. Um, That didn't surprise Shilla one bit. I think you you read the writing on the wall. Well, I was shocked by
3: this news, actually. Completely shocked. Um, Yeah, I was surprised that Poshmark was in the market to be sold. Um, They are, I think, the biggest apparel marketplace, apparel-only marketplace in the game. Um, They've got 80 million users across US, Canada, Australia, and I think India, there's one other country, but mostly US and Canada. They only ipo just the beginning of last year. Um, They came out, they uh, set their price at $42 a share, which gave them about a $3 billion valuation. Um, like everybody, they're down a lot this year. They're down about 80%. Um, and this valuation, I mean, this acquisition valued them at 1.2 billion. So I was surprised that, you know, if you look listen to their last earnings calls, the CEO is, was really focused on getting to profitability, one, and two, expanding categories, but they were very well positioned because they were they're such a juggernaut. The idea that they felt like this was the best pathway for their future rather than fighting for shareholder value and, and and focusing on organic growth was really surprising to me. Um, but obviously they did what they felt like was best for them. The other thing that I thought was really surprising is that in this environment, so it's an all cash offer for a not profitable company, which maybe I think in this particular environment was a little bit surprising um, since um, most folks are focused on profitability and, um, and returning cash.
2: Um, and so... I was a little bit surprised by that as well. And then the reasons for the marriage. Why is it important that it was an all-cash offer as opposed to like cash and stock and neighbor or something?
3: Yeah, that that cash is gone. (laughs) So I'm surprised that given that they're not profitable, resale marketplaces have had a very challenging year. Um, The path ahead um, still seems challenging given the the macroeconomic headwinds. Um, as much as I believe in Poshmark, um, there's still some risk in the deal. And so I'm surprised that they didn't, you know, mitigate some of that risk by leveraging stock um, as to for part of the purchase price. So congratulations um, to Poshmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, congratulations to Poshmark. And then my last point on it is just... Um, I think it's an odd marriage. Um, now, I am half Korean, so I'm bullish on anything Korean. It's a company that's based in South Korea. It's really focused on the South Korean market. That's where its assets are. Um, some of the reasons they came out of the gate with why wh- where they saw the synergies, they talked about content and that it has a large number of bloggers in Korea. They talked about um, Naver owning um, the second largest Metaverse app. Um, they talked about owning digital comics and empowering, um, content creation and all those things don't seem like organic fits with what Poshmark strengths are, um, in, in the U (laughs) S like the most basic
1: resale shopper, American basic resale shopper. Like it's like (laughs) where I go to find, you know, my, if I really want to find a great pair of American
2: jeans, could it have anything to do with their platform the, like, is there something special? I mean, I literally, I'm not suggesting there is because I don't know of it. I just, the, the only thing I could think of is maybe there was something about the technology that Poshmark has developed. I'm sure.
3: They talk about wanting to enter the US market. This is a great way for them to enter the US market. Now, I think that they can absolutely make it work. There's certainly um, some really interest, interesting strategic directions they could go. Um, but I, I think it'll, it'll probably be um, a lot of work um, to bring those synergies to life. Anyway, very surprising. Really interesting to see where it goes. Um, and and certainly, I think, indicative of the growing consolidation we're going to see in the space. I do think we're going to see more mergers um, across resale companies um, and startups in the space. Care, care to take any guesses? Uh, who might be in play? <laughs> the fact that I never in a million years would have thought Poshmark was in play, uh-huh. that
1: means everyone is in play. Okay. Wow. That's my takeaway. I mean, given the context of the state of their overall resale market, they would have been the last player I would have thought to sell. And so I don't know if they have cold feet or as, like, the smartest or just luckiest. Um, because obviously this th- they had been probably planning on this for a really long time. It's a really tough market, especially for the resale companies that have IPO'd. Wall Street is not – Valuing them, I think it's unjustified, but it's really impacting um, their ability to operate. And there have been a lot of layoffs. Maybe they saw they just saw the writing on the wall and thought that the next you know two to five years would be too challenging. And their stock price relative to some of the other resale platforms was actually high, up quite a bit higher. And so maybe they just wanted to get out while the going was relatively good and then cut their losses. And this seems like the best sort of deal that they could get in the context of the overall environment. I don't know that an American company would have bought them for a similar price. We did see Depop get sold for almost exactly the same amount um, about a year ago, maybe more like closer to two years ago, but in 2021, but at nearly 23 times their revenue multiple, whereas Poshmark sold at only five times their revenue multiple. And Depop has um, close to half the number of buyers that Poshmark had. And a fifteen percent lower average order value. So um, the environment timing is everything. Yeah. So timing is everything, yes. and they might have. You know, I, I don't. You know, it's it's kind of been a, a dark night for for resale platforms um, in terms of their ability to grow and operate um, in the context of sort of uh, publicly traded companies. I don't know a whole lot about, like, the shopper in South Korea. So Depop sold to Etsy, and my understanding is that it operates as its own company, although Etsy owns them. And so I wonder if Poshmark will be sort of knowing that there's such cultural differences, and obviously American shoppers are going to be different than South Korean shoppers. I wonder how much they'll let them continue their sort of planned growth trajectory. Well, they're keeping the
2: CEO. That says a lot. He's sticking around, so... And he's the founder.
1: I thought it was really interesting that the CEO of uh, Naver is a 40 year old woman who went to Harvard undergrad and later law school. And so she is a young woman who understands the resale, (laughs) the opportunity of the resale market. So I thought that was interesting.
2: You always got to bet on Koreans. Okay. Well, (laughs) I. (laughs) <laughs> Their interest in fashion is huge. Yeah. I mean, really, they they have um, proven time and time again to be just absolutely avid consumers of fashion at all levels. We should also acknowledge that the real winners in this whole deal are the VCs that backed Parshmark in the first place and mm-hmm. got out at the $3 billion valuation instead right. of the $1.2 billion. Right. Valuation. Congratulations to them. Take us, take us up to dinner eyes. <laughs> A lot of winners based on that metric for last year. Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, we are now going to move on to our main theme here. The topic of our week is men, and in particular, men's fashion and sustainability. People have been emailing, tweeting, and DMing us with their fashion questions and comments, but fewer have left voicemails. And you know what? The first ones to leave a message were men, really earnest men looking for help navigating the confusing world of clothing retail when looking to shop sustainably. So, we're going to take this on today and see how we can help. First, let's have a quick listen to one of our messages, which gets right to the point. Hi, my name is David in Indiana. I've been a big fan of the show since it started. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the
3: sustainability challenges are that are different in the context of men's wear
2: versus uh, versus women's fashion. It seems like it's been most shows mostly covering women's fashion so far, uh, and I'd love to hear comparisons. Thanks. Keep up the great work. When we're talking about sustainability for men's apparel, we need to recognize that the men's market has been trending toward women's shopping habits since about 2009. More men are shopping based on style trends and the sales growth of menswear has outpaced women's for the past decade. So the same tenets apply to all apparel. Buy less, buy better, repair more if you want to think more sustainably. I find it, personally, watching this play out over time, it's occurred to me that men at one time actually were more sustainable fashion consumers than women were. I don't don't think that's the case anymore, but that's certainly what was traditional in having suits in their closet that they cared for and dry cleaned and repaired. Shalette, speaking of resale sites, where can men, let's just throw out some options here. Where can men look for great selections of previously owned garments?
3: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the platforms that we've mentioned in the past um, also sell men's. Um, so Poshmark, The Real, Real, Etsy, eBay, every major platform is going to have a sizable men's collection, thrilling as well. And then there are folks that have been um, historically more centered on men's. So Grailed is focused exclusively on men's and then StockX and Goat which um is now unisex but kind of historically had more of a male centered audience um focused they started with sneakers and they've kind of expanded their categories but um so there's a ton of options. Now I will say in general women's clothing does tend to dominate resale markets and I do think it does have to do with the fact something that you mentioned Christina that we tend to shop and wear clothes differently than men. Um, More frequent cycles of clothing, we buy more frequently, we get rid of more clothes more frequently, and therefore you're going to see more women's clothing in general on resale markets than men. But if you never bought a single new thing ever again and and relied solely on resale marketplaces, you would have a fully stocked closet
2: and look amazing. There's, There's no shortage of options. That's great. Rachel, I feel like we talk about women's wear to the exclusion of men's wear even when it comes to circularity. And I'm wondering if you see differences in the circularity of men's and women's fashions, or is it really just one industry?
1: Well, I think, you know, as our our listeners probably understand now, circularity is complicated and it's not just one thing. So the logistics of circularity uh, at the end of the value chain for recycling, obviously would be, or life extension of clothing, the logistics or how you get things to the next place exactly the same. But to Sheila's point, the marketing side or the resale side, both from actually new clothing, more sustainable clothing, or used clothing, is quite different for men between men and women. So if we're talking about circularity in terms of life extension of clothes or reuse, men wear the hell out of their clothing. Not only do they buy less and turn over their wardrobes less, when it does ultimately get to a thrift store, it's often more worn out and less fit for resale, Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just less exciting sometimes, I think, for men to shop used. And some of the big resale platforms, I don't think ThredUp uh, has men's at all. And from a marketing perspective, it's very different to market to men and women. They're two different customers. The sizing's different. It's challenging. So um, smaller stores, uh, especially online-based that have to deal with single-unit SKUs, often will choose one or the other to start because it's just challenging. There's a challenge marketing to both men and women at the same time. So I actually reached out to some of my male friends to ask, them because I don't consider myself a men's fashion expert at all. So anything I'm telling you right now is things that I've done research on or asked some of my friends. So my friend Adam, I texted him this morning cuz he he is so good. He he will take me vintage shopping and like pick out the best dress for me. Yeah, oh. he's got such a great eye. Uh,
2: Can I be friends with Adam? You (laughs) can absolutely be friends with Adam.
1: Adam is the best and um, would be friends with anybody. So he said, there's really not that that many good fashions places. uh, They're just cowboy shirts and plaid tech guy shirts. They haven't updated men's buying since 2002. And this is kind of the overall sentiment I've gotten from men. Men are like frustrated.
2: Was he talking about... At resale stores or just in general at all? Both. men's fashion,
1: both. So what you're finding in new? Well, he's not hype beast. He's not. He's not gonna. And I've seen that. Like he doesn't want Balenciaga, but he doesn't want a tech bro, a Faherty, and I love Faherty. You know, he has. A, I don't think men are being given a whole lot of in between. So for the men who are confused about how to shop more sustainably, if you want to buy something new, if you're not ready to buy used or you want to mix it up, I would say what I say to women. It's very hard to know how sustainable something is until greenwashing is regulated. So go for durability, go for quality, put some money into it. If you see it reselling for a good value on resale sites, maybe, and you don't want to buy it used buy it new and resell it later because that means that it holds value and most likely it is durable. You know
2: what? I would add in here that I think that somehow in the transfer of generations, it used to be in the olden days that the older generation taught the younger generation, their sons and and daughters, how to buy clothes, what to look for. And, um, I didn't get that in my family, and I think a lot of people don't get it now. But, you know, but I've learned over covering fashion that, for instance, when you go into a store and you want to, you're looking at an item, you feel the hand of the fabric. Grab that and squeeze it and see if it wrinkles, because if it wrinkles immediately, it's going to look. Crap! When you wear it, right? It's it's probably cheap fabric, particularly when it comes with wool. I love um, that. right. So that then turn it inside out and look: are the seams finished? Are they taped? Are they going to unravel when the garment is washed or cleaned? Is there a wide seam allowance so that it can be altered for you? A lot of th- one of the re- ways fashion brands save money, especially fast fashion, is they have the tiniest seams. Is like four threads, you know. And it, you could never let the garment out. You could take it in, but you can't let it out.
1: Christina, it's so interesting you bring that up because so, because another guy I pulled who is Seth Levy, who's the outgoing head of sustainability and policy at ThredUp, he's an advisor of mine. He uh-huh. re- he called out Savile Se- Row. Am I saying it right? Yeah. I've always read Savile. Savile. Okay, Savile Row, which is a street in London that's known for bespoke men's tailoring. So he said he said you know. So Prince Philip was known for having suits tailored for 50 years. And he sa- he sent me this link to this website, Anderson and Sh- uh, Shepherd, um, that says on the website uh, that the clothes are meant to be passed down for generations. Our clothing is built to last and contains generous amounts of inlay, allowing for it, be- it to be altered over the years as your shape changes or as it's passed down between generations. That's what it says on the website. And it's like we don't think about – are clothes like that anymore. And that's going to be an investment, but you could have it for generations, literally.
2: And your shape is going to change over the span of your life. So you have to be able to alter your clothes, which requires, by the way, quality fabric. Um, you know, one thing to look for, this is something that is still in a lot of men's Pants and menswear, but I've noticed lately, particularly in fast fashion, they're skipping that. If you look at the back of the waistband on men's pants... Rarely can you get this in women's pants, and I wish you could. It's split so that it's sewn together in the back, and that's so you can take it in and out very easily with a few snips and sewing, instead of having to remove and rebuild the entire waistband, which is what you often have to do with women's wear. So, I mean, that's a, you know that immediately increases the value of a pair of pants right, in their life in their lifetime value. Right? If you look at 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 cost per wear. I don't know about you guys. If you look in your closet, and I know this is the case um, for everybody, that we sometimes the, the most we spend on a garment is actually the least expensive garment because we've worn it so many times, right? Right. And you only
1: maybe get rid of it when you potentially resell it or give it to somebody else because you feel like a connection to it and its quality and durability. It's not something that you're going to throw in a trash bag and put it in a bin. I know a lot of men shop like this. Not all, but a lot. Just tell me what to buy. Like, just tell me what to buy. So I made a list of a few brands. If they don't oh, want to buy used, great. would that be helpful? Nice. I, yes. I mean, I, I, they're just brands I can't I trust and I think are going in the right direction. They're not perfect. Okay, let's let's I'll go through it. Okay, shoes: Vaya, On Running, Nisolo, and then Bombas the socks. I like that company a lot. And Allen Edmonds because they have repairs. Casual hangout workout gear. V- v- Vuori, I'm probably saying it wrong, but they're climate neutral. Pangaea, because they're investing in material science. And Marine Layer, because they are investing in recycling. Outerwear. Barber, classic. You can never go wrong with barber. Patagonia, built for a lifetime. Arc'teryx, incredible uh, repair programs. Timberland, forefront of uh, circularity and, and sustainability for a big big brand. Carhartt and Peddleton, Classics. Work, more formal. Burberry, they've got a net zero. Unlike Levi's, they've got a net zero commitment by 2040, not 2050. Faherty, they're smaller, but they really mean it. Um, they make really sort of classic built-to-last clothes. Billy Reed, I think they're made in the United States. Paul Smith, every man I know love who, who likes fashion has some Paul Smith. Brooks Brothers, if it's made in the USA, I've heard they're better made if you if you find they're made in the USA labels and Brooks Brothers from the 80s in particular. And then someone suggested Drake's of London for ties.
3: You know, there's a few um there's a few smaller companies that came across my radar. One was is a Swedish men's basics brand called ASKET. I thought they were interesting because they're working towards 100% traceability from farm to finished garment. And they're including a receipt in each garment you buy about their impact, where it came from, um water consumption energy so they're trying their best um to be 100% transparent through their entire production and supply chain there's a there's an LA brand called older brother um they started using ingredients like mushrooms and sea kelp that's the only way they dye their clothes Um, They source all of their materials from Japan, um, and they're all made in LA. And then the last brand that came across my radar is called JCRT. They partner with a a company called Resonance Factory, um, which handles all production in the Dominican Republic. Anyway, those were those were three kind of smaller brands that, that came across my radar for men. You
1: know, th- there's a there's an online platform called Garmentary that doesn't get enough shine, but they do a really good job. I'm sure, Jill, you know of them. But I came across them again, and every time I visit their website, they're doing better. They, now they have not only new clothing, but resale and vintage, clearly, for men and women, and um, some really great brands. Really well-made brands.
2: So – Guys, we have spent most of our lives listening to men opine on women's issues, and here we are doing the same thing in reverse. It turns out that we have an actual man on our podcast team who is living these actual issues in real time. Scott Clavetta, come on down. Hi, Scott.
0: Hey, you guys. This is fun. Thank you for having me on.
2: Thanks for coming. (laughs) Yes. quick background here. We were talking, we, we have all along this path of, of Hot Buttons um, sort of watched Scott's interest in fashion blossoming. It turns out that's not actually completely new. It's been going on sort of um, evolving over many years. And Scott filled us in on that in Slack this week. It was fascinating. I feel like your fashion journey, Scott, is very relevant to the industry today. So could you just walk us briefly through how you evolved from a uh, punk enthusiast to a fascination with men in pleated skirts? <laughs>
0: uh, yes. Th- th- every man goes through that, right? Um, okay. <laughs> sure, so, sure. All right. So back in the 90s, I guess, so I'll date myself. I'm uh, mid-50s now, um, but I was going to graduate school in the 90s. Gen X
2: forever. And, uh,
0: yes. Very, very very Gen X. Um, I was going to graduate school in the '90s, getting an MFA in creative writing, very much in like the artsy scene. I think the culture of fashion kind of draws on that. That the vibe in music then, and uh, at least the music I was listening to and the people I was hanging out with was very like anti corporate, very much don't sell out. You know, stay authentic. And in that context, with everyone I knew, was to just look poor just jeans and t-shirts so you know thrifting in that light was not to find something really interesting or vintage it was just like i want to look like these clothes the, the the signal is like i'm not corporate i'm not you know aspiring to the upper classes i am very much like ground level grunge rock was big that you know all that um so i was happy to be there cuz it's cheap and easy you know and comfortable and so it was actually um, suited me just fine. But then over time, uh, and working and having some money and needing to get clothes to go to conferences and out to nice restaurants and everything, it um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, probably like our callers, you know, you look around, and you're like, well, I need to buy something nice, but what? Because I'm really uncomfortable buying fancy clothes or anything, and. I tried one of my dad's hand-me-down Zena suits, and I looked a little like an Italian mobster. So I, I passed on that <laughs> look uh, for conferences. And uh, uh, I feel
1: like every every man's tried the Zena and been like,
0: "Yeah, nope, no, <laughs> yeah." I, I'm only in my 30s, you know. Come on, I, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> Maybe if I were 30 years old, yeah.
0: A few things happened. One, I feel like the culture changed a little bit, started to shift away from that anti sellout thing, and. It became a little less important to be that way. And one of the things that really made the big difference for me was the arrival of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Um, And it was very much called, it originally was called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. So I was the absolute target market. Um, It has a broader uh, theme these days, but... um, it was very much for me. I happened to be living in San Francisco at the time, so um, near the Castro. So I was living very much in, uh, there was a lot of queer men around in me. In the queer eye? Yes, I was, I was in the eye of the queer storm. <laughs> eye of the queer. <laughs> and um, so I found it fun. I found it actually totally thrilling. Like I, and I learned a few things. I, You know, I just from those shows, I, I picked up a couple of, brands the one that made the most difference the first thing i bought was uh a john varvados jacket um like a sport coat to go to a conference and varvados is the perfect thing because he is the bridge between like sort of making fashion cool for people that come from the indie rocker punk world like that's Absolutely. kind of his he's whole, like got
2: a rock and roll soul
0: yeah and i yeah. i just some one of the advice one of the men they dressed on um queer eye they put him in a like a denim Barbados jacket. And I was like, uh huh. And then from there, uh, it turns out some of my friends were doing the same thing. And uh, a friend of mine, you know, here, um, when I visited him here, we went to New York and he's like, You gotta go to this place, Barney's. This is, you know, this is what we're doing. So we literally, instead of doing the things you normally do in New York, um, at the time, just finding grungy little clubs and uh going out uh, yeah, you know, drinking and eating all night. Um, we went to Barney's. You went to Barney's. We went to Barney's. Did you go to the wait, the, I
2: feel section? like Barbados is a gateway
1: drug. <laughs> yes. I need to add Barbados yes. to my list. Yes. I, I love 100%. that transition from Bar- queer eye, yeah. Barbados, Barney's. Yeah. Okay, yes. yes.
0: And I walked through Barney's and it was like, so it just worked. The curtains <laughs> parted and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> these clothes are amazing. And, and like, the I didn't feel upset to be there. I didn't feel like I was selling out. It just felt amazing. Oh, one of the best first things I ever bought was this uh, incredible Etro wool jacket that cost. It was like a crazy splurge, but it, it was so beautiful. And like you say, that's where I recognized in literally taking it off the rack and holding it and putting it on of like, oh my God, you get what you pay for. You know, this, like, this is the quality, just like the density of it, the beautiful silk on the inside. The etro colors are always amazing. Um,
3: Do you still have it, Scott?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, I I might be buried in that jacket. It was, it's just fantastic. So it was just a lot of fun. I just, I loved it. I I just, I I didn't like start reading magazines or totally getting into the fashion scene, but I absolutely developed um, a real appreciation for it. And It got into women's fashion too and started buying my wife tons of clothes, which she is super appreciative for. And she gets, yeah, every time we go to New York, she gets comments on the street like, oh, I love your jacket. And she's like, yeah, yeah, my husband bought that.
1: Wait, Scott, your wife trusts you to buy her clothes. That is, that's huge.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'd say a a significant majority of her like nice, nice clothes is the ones I've uh, bought her. So I'm into it. You know, I was kind of into art history and stuff in, in college too. And like I just have an appreciation for fashion as art too. And so I love looking at a Tom Brown show or, you know, um Balenciaga or your Valentino. Like those, even though most people, and certainly me as a youth, when I you'd look at a runway show, you'd just shake your head like, what is this? Just nonsense for the rich, you know, just ridiculousness. And now I totally get it and love it and am challenged by it. I wouldn't say every time I see a runway show, I immediately get it and I understand what the, you know, it is. But it's like good art, you know, it challenges you and makes you step back and like, do I like this? Why do I like this? Why do I feel this way?
2: How far, Scott, are you, have you gone in your own fashion journey? I mean, do you wear Tom Brown?
0: I love the skirt, but I don't think I'd actually wear it. Or would I?
1: If if you go to a fashion week with Christina, would you wear do, would you promise right now on this show
2: <laughs> to
0: wear <the laughs> Tom yes, actually, skirt? Yes, actually 100%. If I could go to a fashion week with Christina, I will. First. Yes. <laughs> I, I'll get the Tom Brown skirt. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
3: Scott, have you noticed a difference between the way you wear your clothing versus your wife? like do you any difference between how long you keep items, how often you either of you will feel like you have a shopping need?
0: I actually buy more clothes than she does because I like buying them. Um, I I have more clothing regrets than she does. Because I'll just buy stuff because it looks cool and it's like it's on sale. I'm like, oh my God, I got to have that. And then I get it and I'm like, oh no. I will say, you know, it was interesting when you were just going down that list of brands and talking about their sustainability. My fashion journey did not include sustainability. Even though along the way, I was running Green Tech Media and uh, devoted my entire life to um, climate change and clean energy and everything. When it came to fashion, I just put it in another box and didn't even think of it as like where I would make a difference on sustainability. Um and it's actually very recently and I don't even know if I'm that good at it now. Like I still think of clothes as like the exception. Like if I want to buy something I actually don't look too hard. For example, like when Zara came around to the US, I was initially Kind of, I didn't even know it was fast fashion. I thought it was just a European, like a Spanish, clothing cool clothing place that came to the U.S. So I went there, and it was like, oh my god, it's cheap too. This is amazing, and I had no concept of the notion of fast fashion or that that like by shopping at Zara, I was a part of that cycle at all. I was just like, oh, this is great. It's like European style clothing at that time, yeah.
2: And and frankly, their stuff. Back in those days, it was so much better made than what we consider it fast fashion so now. It was like a whole well other made. level. I mean, of clothes, you can you can. It was still, so well made. Yeah. The problem with it in those days really was more that they were knocking off um, actual designers.
0: Um, yes, it did look familiar, and I guess that was kind of the good thing. It's like, oh, I could afford this. It's amazing,
2: Scott. So
1: I, I wanted to ask you because you brought something up. Um, before the show about Century 21, which I'd heard from other men, that um, when it closed, it was a big loss. And I, I got, when it closed, I got text messages from men saying, where do I shop now that they closed? And I just thought it was like a cheesy outlet. I think I'd been once many, many years ago, but it turns out it had amazing gems at great prices.
0: Incredible, yes. So it was, it was at the World Trade Center um, area. Uh, the friend who brought me to Barty's, that was his other New York secret, like, okay, we're going to, yeah, you know, let's go to Barney's, but then we'll go to Century 21, where you can actually afford to buy the things that you just saw at Barney's. And um, again, like versus going vintage or thrift shopping, I, it was really exciting to get stuff new that was cheap. So, and it was hit or miss, but, you know, the place was incredible. If you were kind of excited about brands, they at least had a little section of Fendi and Valentino, and you know, you just go down the line and or like a Paul Smith um, little corner, and you'd go through it, and you're like, Oh my God, there's like three things that fit, you know, like uh, for like a third of the price. It was amazing. And there, I guess, if I bought something that I regretted, I at least could say, Well, I got it for 70% off. So that's okay. I did get a lot of stuff from Guilt because Guilt has uh, Varvados and Theory and Vince, some of the like the good, like men's clothes and Paul Smith and uh you just sort of watch the sales and then they ship it to you and you can send it back so it made it really easy it's much less fun because you're not literally in person looking at it and able to kind of see how it feels and maybe try it on but it gives you that I mean I guess that's the the dark side of all this it gives you the e-commerce sort of rush of like oh my god there's so many things and this sale is going to end in three hours and oh you know (laughs) And uh, if I'm a member, I get a first look at it and all this kind of nonsense that uh, you get pulled into. But it did the trick.
2: That is probably – by the way, for those who aren't familiar, guilt is G-I-L-T, not G-U-I-L-T. It's like <clears throat> gold-covered guilt, right. that kind of even
0: thing. though I have some guilt about my purchases there still.
2: Guilt, guilt about guilt. <laughs> well, that. thank you, Scott. And you are even more – I don't know. You're You're bordering on a fashionista. We may have to <laughs>
0: – <laughs> No, I have – I am so appreciative of you guys getting me back into this because I have a Vogue membership. I read uh, fashion magazines all weekend now, and I love it. I love it.
2: Really? Yeah. Cool.
0: There was another voicemail. So if you have a minute, let me just read this. This guy was so into it. He left three voicemails because he had so much to ask. So let me just quickly summarize. It was Steve. He's a 40-something dad from the suburbs. He had a few questions, uh, a good methodology to follow to research um, if, you're, if you're researching a brand to figure out if they're really walking the walk, not just as we found with H&M doing some conscious choice labeling, but it was uh, fudging the numbers. Um, so he had that question, but then he called back and he asked, what's the best way to take care of your clothes for longevity? Because he buys like seventh generation or sort of eco brand laundry detergent, but he finds it's crap laundry detergent. So he he's he's sort of torn up about how do I do the best job taking care of these clothes? Um, and then he called back again and he asked um, if wool is okay because he tries to live in a zero impact on animals. So is it is it an animal product that he sh- should feel bad about or is there anything he's missing there? So...
2: Uh, he has a lot wool, of questions. We
0: love you, Steve.
1: <laughs> Steve, Steve, you are God wonderful. God bless you. Yes, call with more questions.
0: All right. So I love it. What do you think?
1: I did some reading about wool, and it turned. It's horrifying. <laughs> The whole industry is horrifying. There are certifications you can look for, but none of them protect the animals against basically having their hindquarters chopped off without anesthesia and their tails chopped off without any numbing. Um, I guess it protects them from getting bitten by flies and things like that. There's a word for the it, – it it's like muciling or something like that, but there's a procedure that they do on sheep to take off this, the the wool off their but basically, so the flies don't get to them, but they don't use numbing agent often. And they also take off their tails um, and don't use numbing agent. There's all sorts of terrible things that happen to sheep, that especially sheep that are in flocks of like 2,700 or more, which is the typical sort of size uh, of uh, um, a large scale um, uh, sheep farm. But according to this site, they don't protect. It's not entirely. It's like most cases, and probably not regulated. <laughs>
2: okay, so it's 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 another mm-hmm. factory farming kind of situation.
1: It's a factory farming situation, right. and it's a it's a systemic issue, and it's like one that customers can't. It just goes back to my point. Like you, you can't become a scientist and a regulator and a um, you know, and an a farm auditor. Brands should be more focused on their supply chains, as should regulatory bodies. So buy less, buy better. And then eco good detergent, I would just say there's lots of options out there. I didn't know seventh generation was not sufficient. I've tried Blue Land. I like that brand a lot and they work well. They come in little tablets so you're not basically buying water.
2: Steve, if you're having trouble getting stains out of clothes because of your detergent, try soaking them overnight before you wash them. And it tends to let stains sort of release um, or use smaller stain removers and things like that. I mean, that if you want to do it well, it's not just going to be dumping everything in a laundry machine and expecting the laundry machine to do it for you. There really is effort involved in removing stains and things like that, especially... Collar stains in the back of men's collars and things like that. They require work. By the way, thank you, Steve. Thank you, David, for your questions. Keep them coming. I do want to say, by the way, that there's something really love. We love getting people's DMs. I love getting the emails, but there's something lovely about hearing a voice on a line asking these questions. You hear the human in there. So um, keep them coming. Please don't be afraid to call a telephone which my 23-year-old son, by the way, says that nobody will phone us who's under 30. So <laughs> I, we challenge you under 30s out there to phone us. <laughs> That is all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at Hot Buttons Pod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. I know that's a pain, but it really helps us. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or... Please leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. So give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by PostScript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Misa-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. PostScript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week.
0: And he's like, you got to go to this place, Barney's. This is, you know, this is what we're doing. So we literally, instead of doing the things you normally do in New York... At the time, just finding grungy little clubs and going out, uh, you know, drinking and eating all night. We went to Barney's. You went to Barney's. We went to Barney's. Did you go and to the Wait? I
2: feel section? like
1: Barbados is a gateway drug. <laughs> yes. I need to add Barbados yes. to my list. Yes. I, I love 100%. that transition from Bar- Queer Eye, yeah. Barbados, Barney's. Yeah. Okay, yes. yes.